The message I have for you today, friends, is something that I, I very often share with churches uh, when I first meet them. I, I think it's a good introductory message. Uh, it's, it's an expression that many of you have probably heard. Maybe you've used or you've seen it in movies or shows. And, and uh, don't bring a knife to a gunfight, right? What does that mean? We're going to explore that today. And I'm going to challenge you a little bit because God wants me to challenge you. But I hope in the midst of that, in the midst of that challenge that you also feel encouraged and motivated. I think that's how Christ communicates with us, isn't it? And he's this pretty safe model for us to follow. Christ challenges us. I mean, sometimes it's almost a slap in the face when we read some of Christ's words and we realize, wow, I'm, I'm weighed in the balance and found wanting. And yet in the midst of that challenge, there's also encouragement, right? We're, we're lifted up, as the song says. Christ never just, he doesn't humiliate us, but sometimes he humbles us, right? And so today I hope that we are humbled and challenged together. And, and as I direct this to you, you understand that I'm, I'm directing it with equal fervor at myself as a leader within the church. And, um, and I just hope and pray that we're encouraged, we're educated, and we're challenged today by the message that God has placed in my heart to share with you. Could we pray just one more time as we prepare to share in this message? Lord in heaven, we are grateful and once again we come to you and we ask today that you would continue to be the object and subject of our worship, that you would be the center of our attention Lord, there are things that press in on our minds and our North American schedules. We, uh, we run to and fro, we're busy, we drive, we have lots of things to do during the week. But Lord, on Sabbath, train our minds to set those things aside, even if they are worthy things, worthy objects of our attention and time and energy. Help us to just set it aside now, to be still and know that you are God and to just have a great worship experience together because you are here in our midst. We're lifting up your name on high, and we pray that you would guide us as we continue to do this together. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. I'm going to share with you, I'm going to talk a little bit with you today about one of my favorite themes. It's a bit of a sad reality in the world today, and it's a predominant theme in the Word of God, and that, of course, is the theme of war and conflict. War has changed a lot over the centuries, hasn't it? Think about war. War we read about in the Bible. Battles between the, the armies of Israel and, and, and their enemies. Battles that were fought up close and, and personal, sometimes on horseback or with chariots, with, with archers and, 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 and inside walled cities and, and city-states and fortresses. Wars has changed a lot, especially over the last couple hundred years. Up until a couple hundred years ago, war was fought largely the same. But in the last couple hundred years, well, war has changed. Up until the 18th century, war saw men mainly fighting on horseback, right? Or hand-to-hand -hand with swords and, and sometimes with armor. And the Bible, of course, speaks about armor. And we're going to look at that a little bit today as we talk about the, the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God and the armor of God that, that Paul asks us to put on. War was a brutal thing. I mean, picture this. If you had to get up close enough to your enemy that you could smell what he had for breakfast... 
before you killed him or he killed you, that's a brutal thing, isn't it? Before the days of drones, before the days of remote control warfare, it was brutal and, and in your face. And then along came what we know as the arquebus in the 16th century. This is the predecessor to the, to the musket, to the modern rifle. And this, of course, changed how battles were fought because suddenly you didn't just need a sword. You didn't have to get within arm's reach of someone to kill them. You could do it from a distance. And they loaded all sorts of unrighteousness into these things and, and they would blast it out, balls and dirt and, and, and rocks and, and then, of course, ball bearings and, and they would wreak havoc, re result in savagery. Then, of course, we had the musket, the predecessor to the modern rifle. And when this came along, warfare changed forever. Of course, World War I, here we have one of those iconic photos, right? Men in the trench, just over 100 years ago. This year, in November, 100 years since World War I came to a close. Just a few short years ago, the last of the Canadian veterans, about 114, 115-year-old men, died. The men who had memories of this terrible conflict. Of course, World War I witnessed perhaps the greatest advancements and changes to take place in one conflict. You had everything from the U.S. cavalry on horseback, still in World War I, to army tanks and, and, and planes run, running across the skies and over the land. World War I tanks, not a pleasant place to be. Some men died of asphyxiation. Some men died of carbon monoxide poisoning because the ventilation was so poor with the old engines as they were figuring out how to make internal combustion engines make something this big go. And of course, we had the airplanes as well. Warfare became more technology-based. So, suddenly now it was in the air as well, and there were bullets being shot down onto the ground, and, and then it was on large battleships. It began to, to change, and yet it remained a bloody affair. It used to take one man to kill one man, right? Now the push of a button can kill hundreds, thousands, millions. Of course, we know recently some world leaders have bragged about the size of their red buttons. The realities of physical war, as we think about it today, they're brutal, aren't they? Ongoing conflicts even today, we think about in Syria, innocent men and women, children, suffering chemical attacks, illegal things happening. It's, it's brutal. It's in your face. It's tangible. It's something that we can, we can feel. And of course, still in our midst today, if you go to a Remembrance Day ceremony, you can see the old men standing there, now in their 90s, who remember the dark days of World War II. I remember talking to my, my grandfather, the father of my mom, who was born here in Belleville, he was a World War II veteran. Like many men, he didn't really like to talk about it much. He opened up a little bit in his last few years where he would share just a bit about what it was like. And um, hearing those stories and understanding what he went through reminded me how much war is a result of sin. War is a brutal thing. For centuries, 
People who have followed God have experienced war. And I'm not talking yet about spiritual war. I I mean the results of a very real physical conflict. The consequences of the physical conflict that come as a result of choosing to follow Christ. You know, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we have a presence in about 190 countries and sovereign states around the world. Isn't that amazing? We're just over 150 years old. And yet we have a... I mean, it started in the northeastern United States, just down the road, really. A few hours down the road, cross the border at Detroit, Michigan, or at Port Huron, and go a couple hours and you're right there at the birthplace of Adventism. Fast forward 150 years and we're in 190 countries. And of course, some of these countries are geopolitically unstable. Some of them do not have the freedom that you and I enjoy here in Canada. As we know today, there are regions of Africa and India and Pakistan, regions of the Middle East, where the local, either the local government or the government at large is controlled by radical Muslims, and it's a dangerous thing to wear the badge of Christianity. It's a dangerous thing to, to go to church. To say, I am a Christian, a follower of Christ. And it's not just dangerous because people will look at you funny, as they may today, even in Canada, when they find out you're an Adventist. No, it goes beyond strange looks or downward glances. It becomes a very real physical danger. Our general conference right now is in communication with Christians in certain areas of the world where they cannot share their stories during the mission story hour without changing names and dates to protect the people who are calling on Jesus. In other words, the war, friends, in many parts of the world for Christians is real. And the reality is that we are in the midst of a very real spiritual war. However, here in North America, now some of you in this room were born in North America, born in Canada. Some of you, as is always the case in the beautiful Seventh-day Adventist church, have experiences that fall outside of the North American context. It's, it's one of the cool things about being an Adventist, really. I hope you think it's cool. I mean, as a pastor, I've sat down in my time as a pastor and chatted with people about what it was like when the Iron Curtain fell in Europe and, and, and communist countries and, and how they escaped from Hungary. I've sat down with people and talked about how difficult life was in Zimbabwe. I've chatted with folks who, from North India. That's part of life as a Seventh-day Adventist. But of course, many of us, having been born here, this is all we've known. Freedom. Thank God for freedom, right? I mean, we should be grateful for freedom. So here in North America, the strategy of the enemy is different. You see, the the enemy tries to snuff out Christianity in certain parts of the world by using fear and oppression. But he recognizes that doesn't always work given the geopolitical climate. With our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, even though that thing may be abused at times and twisted and people get angry on both sides, the fact is it still gives us freedom, praise God. And, and so the, 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 the practice of the enemy, his, his strategy here is, is different, it's more subtle. 
we have religious liberty. We can think, we can believe, we can proselytize in any way we want. We can attend church on Sabbath. We can go to church on Sunday, on Wednesday, on Friday. We can call on God. We can worship Buddha. We can call on Satan. You can do whatever you want in Canada. As long as you are not breaking an obvious law, you can set up a sign and say, come and join our meetings, join our movement, and find out how we can give you more abundant life. Find out about Bible prophecy. Find out how you can eat and drink differently and, 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 and join our organization and, and, and give us some money, donate, help us out, because we want to do good for the community. We have that freedom here in Canada. And this freedom, friends, it's a, well, it's a mixed blessing, isn't it? I mean, we're thankful it's there, but this is where the enemy gets crafty. Because of the freedom that we currently enjoy, we know prophecy tells us that we may not, we will not always enjoy this level of freedom, but it's here right now. And so because of this freedom, the enemy takes this freedom, this good thing from God, because God's the author of freedom, right? God's law, as James calls it, is the perfect law of liberty. And so God is the source of freedom, but the enemy takes the freedom and he tries to convince us that there's not really any spiritual conflict going on here in Canada. He tries to convince us that all this talk about spiritual warfare is just old-fashioned Christians getting a little too excited. They're not really talking in a, in a relevant way. See, the greatest trick of the enemy has been to lull Christians into a false sense of security and to claim that we're not really at war. I mean, think about it. Do you and I, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, do we really talk and dwell on the idea of spiritual warfare the way we should? Warfare. The fact that we are at war. I mean, friends, I, I want to tell you today, and this is one of the first challenges I need to lay on you, is the fact that we are at war. We just don't always know it. We are at war. Now let's discuss this for a minute. What are we at war with? I mean, after all, if we're going to acknowledge that the fact that we're in a conflict zone, we better be wise to know who or what we're fighting. So what I'm going to do is explore three areas. What I want to do is look at three areas of things that we're fighting. Now understand, as I share these three things with you that we should be fighting against, it's not an exhaustive list. In other words, it's not the be-all and the end-all. You may have things that you could add to that list that would be just as valid as what I share today. And praise God if you do. But I'm going to share three things that jump out at me as I study the Word of God, as I consider the challenges facing our contemporary church today, our 21st century Seventh-day Adventist church here in Canada, narrow the focus down even to here in southern and east central Ontario, as I study the church and think about where we're at, what we're facing, there's three things that jump out at me. And if you have more Hey, feel free to share them with me or with one another because really there's lots of things that we should be fighting against. But here's three, and then we're going to look at some things that we should not be fighting as well. So first thing that we should be fighting against, apathy. What's that word I have in quotes? Some of you guys know what that word, what is that word? 
Somebody say it aloud. Somebody, somebody under 40. You know what that word is. Meh. Exactly. Have you guys heard that word before? It's an annoying word. I, I put it up here even though it annoys me a little because it annoys me when people say it. You know what that word is? I'll do the, the body language. Meh. Does, now, does that make sense? Now, okay, for example, here's where this would be unwelcome. You get stopped by the police, and they say, ma'am or sir, you ran a stop sign back there. You blasted right through the stop sign, and the school child was, there was a kid there heading to school on his bike. He had gotten off, and he was ready to walk across, and he had to stop and back up the bike because you blasted through the stop sign. Now, what if you said to the cop, meh, how do you think your morning's going to go? Not great, right? What does meh mean? It means I don't care, right? Parent comes home and says to the kid, do you have any homework? Meh. In other words, I don't care. I don't know. Meh, by its very definition, it's apathy. It's like a cognitive dysfunction whereby a person chooses to be unconcerned with matters of real importance. Here's the body language of meh. Meh, whatever, right? Nobody says it with enthusiasm, right? You can't say, meh, because it, it makes no sense. By its very nature, it's, it's a I don't care thing. And we struggle as Seventh-day Adventists with rampant apathy within our church. This is the first thing we should be battling against. Apathy is deadly. It provides a supposed excuse or an escape route from action when action is actually necessary. Could be in our nominating committee. Any of you ever have the joy of sitting on a nominating committee? Oh, yes. Listen, sometimes nominating committees are a beautiful thing. When you have volunteers and someone who says, I'd like to help in the children's department. And I mean somebody who can work with children, right? Not some crazy person, but someone who can work with kids. Hey, it's a joy. But have you ever struggled with apathy on a nominating committee level? I got a secret for you. And listen, pastors aren't, aren't innocent because sometimes there's apathy within the clergy as well. But pastors struggle. One of their greatest struggles is apathy in the church membership. They struggle with it. They're not sure what to do with it. It exasperates them. And then the challenge for us is let us be the example that we want to see in other people, right? So if we don't want to see apathy, we, we better not have apathy in ourselves. Apathy is deadly, friends. It's deadly in the church because there are things of real importance that we have chosen to become unengaged. So the best antidote to apathy is engagement. Getting connected and taking action on things of importance in our lives, which means in our church and in our community. None of us are here just to warm up those beautiful padded pews. We're here to serve. We're all here to work. Every one of us, no matter how shy or withdrawn you may be, everyone has been gifted with the ability to share Christ in word and in deed. Everyone. Not everyone is comfortable standing in front of a group of 10, 100, or 1,000. God doesn't call everyone to do that. Society would be very annoying if everyone was leaders that felt they were called to talk in front of 1,000 people, right? Not everyone's called to do that. 
Praise God. We need the folks who just want to sit one-on-one and share in word and in deed acts of kindness. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm a behind-the-scenes person? Listen, there are lots of behind-the-scenes people who are hard-working. And a lot of the, most of the the in-front-of-the-scenes things couldn't happen without the behind-the-scenes people. We just need to recognize whether we're in front of the scenes or behind the scenes, God has called us to be engaged. That being in front of the scenes never excuses us from some of the hard work that has to happen before the event. And being the, behind the scenes is never an excuse for saying, well, I, I can't really do anything because this would require me to speak in front of two or three people. God wants us to be engaged. So apathy. Apathy is the first thing that you and I are called to fight against in the church today, especially in our lukewarm Laodicean state. Apathy. The second thing here in North America, and this is one that I, you know, I put it here and I thought, well, I need to be careful, and yet, really, we need to say it. The results of prosperity. Did you know that you're all wealthy? All of you are rolling in it. You are incredibly wealthy compared to the vast majority of the world. We live in rampant luxury here in Canada. Now I know some of you are thinking about your bank balance and saying, this pastor doesn't have a clue what I'm talking about. We are not wealthy. But the material blessings we are surrounded by, the Everything from the quality of the public transportation we take to our vehicles to where we lay our head at night. We are surrounded by rampant luxury. Now listen, is prosperity a problem? Is prosperity itself a problem? It is not. Prosperity comes from God. Now I'm no prosperity preacher that says, follow God and you're all going to be rich. That's foolishness. But prosperity comes from God and it is His desire to bless His people. It's His desire to have you at a place in your relationship with Him that He can entrust further blessings to you and where He knows it will not distract you from your true mission. God wants prosperity. He wants us to do well. He wants us to make wise decisions financially so that we are established for the future. He doesn't want us to have a a, a Jesus is coming soon, so forget about it mentality. See, that was the foolishness that ran through our church for many decades, and it resulted in poorly constructed buildings because they thought this doesn't need to last that long. Jesus is coming. Really? They were saying that in World War I. And then again, World War II, they were convinced 75 years ago Jesus was coming because those were pretty dark days in Europe, right? A lot of people died. 75 years have gone by. And so this whole idea, Jesus is coming soon, doesn't mean we abandon plans for the future. Prosperity is important. Being well-established for retirement or for our children's education, beautiful things. But the results of prosperity, the worldly results of prosperity that creep into our church. Do you remember in-gathering? Remember that old-fashioned thing that churches used to do? You'd go door to door in the fall. Usually it would happen October, November, and you'd get those little lanterns. I mean, I grew up kind of half Adventist. I'll explain that to you some other time. So I had, I, I had experiences in the church and out of the church because my dad had nothing to do with uh, the church and religion and God until last year. But um, 
So I kind of grew up half Adventist, which means I went in-gathering. My mom would take us to church, and so this is the 1970s. In-gathering was still a healthy thing in the church back then, and so we would get together. This is Richmond Hill Church, just north of Toronto. Churches everywhere did it, and we'd get our little can or the little lantern that turned on and would play Silent Night, and we would go door to door, and we would tell people we were raising money uh, for Seventh-day Adventist World Services, SAWS, before it was called ADRA, Right? And, and, and then it became Adra, and we were, and here we had a little brochure. And did you notice this? Those of you who remember in gathering, where would you get more money? The poor areas of town or the wealthy areas? Of course, the poor areas. When you get to the town homes and the homes that were worth maybe back then twenty, thirty thousand dollars each, the simple looking homes with the old seventy two Chrysler in the driveway that had a few rust spots on it, and you got to the door. Chances are you get more of a smile and sometimes you'd get, you know, the, you'd get a one or a two dollar bill. That's, you know, when we had paper money, right? There's no loonies or toonies. It was paper. And you, you wouldn't just get the stuff that jingled. You'd get the stuff that folded. Sometimes even a five dollar bill. Now, 1977, 78, somebody shoves a $5 bill into your thing. You know, I'm like eight or nine years old. I'm celebrating, going to the next house. And what we saw, even as a small child, I saw the results of prosperity meant people didn't see things the way others did. When we get to the wealthy, you know, the big houses that were maybe worth 60 or 70 or $100,000 back then, chances are we'd have the door closed in our face or hardly get anything. I remember one door, I, I knocked on one door and opened it up and they were having a Halloween party. So a dude answered the door dressed like a monster. Now I'm eight years old, freaked me out a little bit. I kind of stepped back and he says, well, how are you doing? Through the mask, I could barely understand. I could hear this music going on in the background, all these people dressed monsters, ghosts, witches and goblins. I said, I, I, I'm here, I, you know, I just stammered out a little Adra thing. And he said, hey, give me that thing. And he took the money thing from my hand. And I thought, uh-oh. And they passed it around the party. I could see I was watching. You know, I'm a little kid. I'm trying to watch. They're passing it around. Money's going in. By the time it came back out again, there was like 25 bucks in there. They had passed it around this costume party. See, so God can even use a crazy Halloween party to help His will be accomplished, right? God can use anything. And that was in a simple, you know, not poor, poor, but a simple lower middle class area town where they had just gotten together. And they thought, oh, there's little kids here, let's give to charity. See, the results of prosperity, the things that distract you and I, the buy now, pay later. And by the way, when you don't pay on time, it's 30% annual interest. But, but get it now. Get it now. You qualify for a $400,000 mortgage? Shoot for 405. Max out your debt service ratio because you can. The results of prosperity. We don't need to fight prosperity. Prosperity is good, friends. But the results, insofar as they may blind us to our need for God, for something more than material comfort. You see, that needs to be one of our primary prayers here in North America. Lord, please break through people's materialism-induced blindness. They think they don't need God because they're surrounded with material comforts. God has to shake us awake from that. And we need to make sure that those values do not infiltrate our church. We have to fight against meh. We have to fight against the results of prosperity. We also have to fight against rampant secularism. 
The notion of the divine being is removed from all aspects of life here in Canada. We see this new religion taking root, the religion of self, the religion of secularism that's lifted up. This is something we must fight against by continually making our voice heard as Christians in our community, by respectfully and lovingly disagreeing with those who want to go on a purely secular route. You see, secular minds do a lot of good. The environmental movement largely is governed by rampant secularism, elevating the earth as a deity, worshiping the earth. We've got to save the earth. Does that mean environmentalism is bad? Of course not. Taking care of the planet? Making more responsible decisions? There's a lot of good that happens, but unfortunately, the focus and the reason and the motivation for doing it is rooted in self rather than a love for God, a love for others, and a love for the planet that He made. Rampant secularism, friends. Actually, there's four. I've got four things that I want us to fight against today that I want to get you in a fighting mood so that as you think of these things, in your own life, in your church, in your family, in your home circle, and in your community, we should fight against these things. Rampant secularism is the third one. And then, of course, moral relativism. that The, the idea that there's no absolute right or wrong. What's right for me may or may not be right for you. It, it may be wrong, and, and that's okay. Friends, moral relativism, this idea that there's no absolute objective right and wrong. We know, as Christians, it has redefined reality here in Canada. It's done so in a way that makes many of us look at society as it redefines sexuality, family, etc. And it reminds us that our values as Christians stand in stark contrast to the values of society. These are the things we must fight against. But how? If you look at this list and it gets you in a fighting mood, we have to recognize who we are called to fight, who we are not called to fight, and how we must fight. Because as Adventists, we're scrappers sometimes. Did you Have you ever picked up on that? How many of you have been Adventists? How many of you are Adventists in the room? Most of you? You've been Adventists more than five minutes? Yeah, then you've seen the reality of what I'm talking about. Adventists sometimes, we're scrappers. We like to get in it. And you know, if you look at our history, you, you see why. Because the, the Adventist church for many years, I mean, when we started, we had those men and women that would get down on their knees, fast and pray and search out Scripture for truth. I, hey, that's a good thing to do, isn't it? I mean, you, you want to find Bible truth? Fast and pray and spend some time with God and then go serve Him, right? Because they did both. They didn't just hide in the rooms. They got out and did some good in the community as well and, and, and worked for God and shared the truth. But throughout the early part of the 20th century, late 19th and early 20th, what would we do? We Adventists recognized, hey, we've got some truth on our side, and so we're going to debate and we're going to set up some meetings and we're going to say we're, we're, we're right and where the others are wrong. And for a large part, it made us a very argumentative people. 
Because we could show from Scripture, hey, guess what happens with Jesus coming? It's not a secret. What happens when you die? You're not floating to heaven. You're staying in the grave and sleep until Jesus comes. What about prophecy? And, hey, oh, the Sabbath, it's eternal. Isaiah tells us we're going to keep the Sabbath in heaven. And so we, we would take these things and become argumentative about it. And so I want us to discuss today who we should not be fighting now that we've looked at this list and maybe that list gets you in a bit of a fighting mood. You think, yeah, we've got to fight against apathy and the results of prosperity and rampant secularism and moral relativism. Yes, we've got to fight against that, but how? And first of all, to discover how we should fight, we should discover and learn and discuss just for a moment or two who we should not be fighting. And the first should be obvious to you each other. Oh, friends. We're part of an international movement. Everywhere you go, you're going to find brothers and sisters in the Adventist faith. But when you bring that together and narrow it down to a church family, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we really love each other? Church lobbies are an interesting place, aren't they? On Sabbath morning, a church lobby is very often where you'll hear those words that Adventists are famous for saying. It's two words. What is it? Happy Sabbath. You know we say Happy Sabbath so much that it's actually on our Wikipedia page? Google Adventists, and you'll see down on our Wikipedia page uh, that it says we're known for saying Happy Sabbath to one another. Hey, Sabbath greetings are a beautiful thing. Church lobby, very often there's smiles, there's handshakes, how are you? But the question we must challenge ourselves with is do we really love one another or are we fighting one another silently? If we're convinced that our way is the right way at the church business meeting or at the board meeting and we insist on getting our way, I wonder who's glorified? God or my ego? You see, we can't fight each other. The enemy delights when God's people turn on one another. Imagine that in a real battle. Think about that. Now, if we consider ourselves the army of God, we sing that even as kids. I'm in His Majesty's army. His Majesty the King of Kings, right? We sing all those Christian warfare songs. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. That makes us an army. So if we're an army, then we recognize that the powers of darkness, Satan and his evil enemies, or agents rather, are our enemy. Paul says it in Ephesians 6, you wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and rulers of the dark places, right? So picture two armies arrayed against one another. You've got the armies of light and the armies of darkness. And, 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 and picture an old-fashioned battlefield. They're on two hillsides and they're ready to engage in battle. And you got the army of light there against the army of darkness and, and Satan's eyeballing the army and looking for a weak point. And then you have the army of light and they're standing there saying, okay, <clears throat> what's our battle plan? How do we attack? And the general gets together with the, with the other leaders and the sergeant and they say, okay, you take your division. <clears throat> you go around back. You flank them, we're going to surprise them. You hide right here, and when they advance, you jump out and attack them. And another, another sergeant says, no, I don't, I don't like your battle plan. It's not right, and I don't feel called to participate in that battle plan. 
and another sergeant pipes up and says, well, you know what? Fighting in this way really isn't my spiritual gift, and so I'm just going to hang back while you guys fight. And another one comes and says, well, but guess what? I, I don't like your uniforms. You guys aren't dressed right, and you don't look like you're ready for battle, and so I'm not going to be associated with you. And pretty soon an argument erupts. Well, I don't like, no, look, and your horse is the wrong color. And, and, and the enemy's looking on, and he says, this is awesome. They're killing each other. And so it is. And so it goes. At so many of our gatherings. We gnash at one another. And the enemy looks on and says, I actually don't have to do a thing. They're doing it for me. We should not be fighting each other. Now I've pastored several churches. I know a couple of the churches that I pastored in places far from here a while ago, people would come to me before the first business meeting. You know, first business meeting with the pastor is usually when the best attendance is because more people are curious to see what you're all about. After that, it drops off, second, third, fourth. But the first one, lots of people come. And I had people come and warn me and say, man, you got to be careful because there's some, there's some firecrackers in this church. A couple of business meetings ago, one guy picked up a chair and threw it against the wall. And I thought, wow, we got a colorful bunch here. I, and so then I just thought, big picture. I don't know who was right or who was wrong with that. Obviously, he was wrong for throwing the chair. Maybe the reasons for him being frustrated were right. I don't know, and I don't care. Because we're starting fresh. And so my word to them is, and, it, and it's a word that I share with any Adventist group that will listen. When you get together for a church business meeting, Church business. What is church business? Oh, yeah, it's God's business. It's saving the lost, inviting people into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's church business. So when you get together with a church business meeting, don't let a single word escape your lips that is not saturated with Christ-like love. If it does... Pretend you're under arrest and exercise your right to remain silent. Be quiet. I said that to this church before we started. I said the first person to speak with even a hint of irritation in their voice, I will shut this down. You know what? They behave themselves. <laughs> Maybe because of the warning, but you know what? After that, they, several folks came and said, I was just so grateful that we could communicate today in love. Friends, we should not be fighting one another. The enemy is glorified when we do. How about the second group? Other Christians. Maybe you saw an article in September's edition of the uh, Adventist Messenger from Pastor Sanchez out in Manitoba. And in there, he, <clears throat> if you read the article, you may not agree with 100% of what he says, but I appreciated what he said uh, when he said, that, and I paraphrase, as Adventists, we tend to see other Christians as pre-Adventist. You know, you're not quite there yet. And so we begin to formulize in our mind, formulate in our mind how we can drop the truth bomb on them so that they, they, they can go from being pre-Adventist to Adventist. You see, this should not be our attitude 
We, we know, as Adventists, look, we, we know. The, there are truths in the Bible that we lift up because we see scriptural evidence for them. That's why we're here today and not tomorrow. Praise God. Praise God. But the solution is not found in, in fighting. We have to remember, you and I as Adventists are not the only ones in the army of God. There are many people who will be in church tomorrow morning right here in Belleville who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. And if they fall asleep, they're falling asleep in Jesus. And they will hear His voice like Jesus says in John 5, marvel not at this, there are those who are in the grave who will hear the voice of God and will come forth, those who have done good, to the resurrection of righteousness. We Adventists, praise God, will be a small minority in the kingdom of heaven when denomination ceases to exist. There are others in the army of God today who are doing good and doing His work, and we must work with them. This is a challenge for us as SDAs because we're part of the Christian community. And of course, we know there are several things that set us apart. Prophecy, Sabbath, state of the dead. Yet the proclamation of truth in a loving manner stands in stark contrast to the attitude that we sometimes possess as Adventists towards other Christians. We must not fight them. We must love them and recognize that God has used them. Hey, if God could use a crazy dude like Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had the spirit of prophecy. Read the Bible. God gave him dreams. He wasn't sure what they were all about, but that's the spirit of prophecy. God spoke to him and used him. Read the last words that Nebuchadnezzar ever uttered in the Bible. Sounds like the book of Psalms. Praising God, saying, hey, God can, God can lift you up and those who are proud, He can humble them. Because He humbled Nebuchadnezzar, right? If God can use a crazy dude like Nebuchadnezzar who is ready to burn people's houses to the ground and kill their families, I'm pretty sure He can use other people in other denominations who are calling on Jesus. Right? So praise God. We should not be fighting other Christians. And finally, we should not be fighting the godless multitudes. The fact is, friends, there are many <coughs> excuse me, in the world today who want nothing to do with God. There are many people in our community right here in Belleville who think we're all idiots. It's true, right? They think we are morons, straight-up losers for believing that God created the world. We should not fight them. Do not, Facebook and Twitter, Twitter crowd, get involved in online debates with trolls who just want to put you down because you're Christian. Don't engage them. I've got lots of atheists, God-hating atheists in my own family who regularly post things just trying to bait a reply. Don't do it. It will serve nothing. We are counseled even from Mrs. White to avoid the debate atmosphere when possible because God is rarely glorified in the debate atmosphere. Rarely. It's usually ego against ego. Creationist versus evolutionist. Sabbath versus Sunday. In this case, God versus no God. Let's not fight the godless multitudes. As Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, you all should be known as the nicest people on your street. The friendliest person in your building. 
the kindest, most approachable person on your block. We should generate positive interactions with those who have no desire to have anything to do with God. Because if they have a positive interaction with the Christian, it's going to lower prejudice a little more than a stern interaction, right? Than a fight, the conflict. Godless multitudes need our prayers, man. We need to reach out to these crazy communities that we're part of now. All these poor fools, because I mean, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, right? So there's lots of poor fools lost in sin who just need Jesus. Oh, it's easy for us to put them down because they're self-centered and, and they think that the problems are going to be solved by mankind saving the planet. We shouldn't fight against these people. We should reach out to them. Engage with our communities. Sit down at a church business meeting and discuss how we can creatively and innovatively reach the lost who want nothing to do with God, not just the Sunday keepers, but the post-spiritual, post-religious people who say, I'm a nun. On the, on the uh, survey, I check none on the questionnaire. I have no religious affiliation. We have to reach those people. And it starts with positive interactions, not with fighting. Brothers and sisters, my final word to you today is centered around the call to fight. Put on the whole armor of God every day, recognizing that if you don't, if you get up in the morning, you all have busy work, and I know even if you're retired, you're still busy. Every retired person I know seems busier than the ones who are still working. So you're all busy. You all have demands on your time. But if you get up in the morning... <clears throat> And you allow the urgent to replace the essential. You understand? If you allow the urgent things in your schedule to replace the essential time spent with God, putting on that armor in the morning before you go out into this crazy world, you're like a person bringing a knife to a gunfight. What does that mean? We know what it means, right? It's self-explanatory. Who's going to win in this contest? You know, it's not like the movies where sometimes the guy will throw the knife and the guy with the gun is done. No, the guy with the gun is going to win, okay? Bring a knife to a gunfight. What does that mean? It means you are dramatically underestimating the conflict that you are about to enter into. Listen, God is powerful, and I like to focus on God when I preach and when I study, but never forget, the enemy hates you, and he's got very advanced warfare, and he's skilled at using it because he has thousands of years of practice. He studies you. He knows you. Don't go out into the world without putting on the whole armor of God. We're bringing a knife to a gunfight. We're going to be mowed down by the enemy and by society, by secularism, by moral relativism, by apathy. Put on the armor of God. Put on the armor of God every day. The belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit... The helmet of salvation, right? The knowledge of salvation. The breastplate of righteousness. Shield of faith. The feet of the gospel of peace. Oh, that good old sword of the Spirit, right? The Word of God. Remember, swords are not designed to warn people. They're designed to kill. The Word of God is designed to kill discouragement. To annihilate error to slay division, not to kill other people. Put on the armor of God 
And then you know what? It's like you have a cannon and the enemy has a slingshot. You are so dramatically superior in strength with God's armor on to what the enemy has. It's not even fair. That's the secret the enemy doesn't want you to know. God isn't just barely stronger than the enemy. I barely made it through. You put on the armor of God, you are vastly superior in strength and wisdom than the enemy. Never forget it. You are then equipped to deal with this crazy world and all the rascals that live in there. The godless multitudes who think we are fools. You will be equipped to love them to positively interact with them and to show them Jesus through your radical kindness and the things you do in your community. Put on the armor of God, friends. Let's not bring a knife to a gunfight. Let's remember as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we are at war. But with God's armor, we will win. May God bless you. May God use you. And may God guide us and give us wisdom as we seek to reach the people of Belleville, Kingston, Cornwall, Oshawa, Curtis, North Bay, Windsor, wherever God calls us. May God use us. May we put on his armor so we can be victorious. Praise God. Amen.